0: Despite industry and government efforts, identity theft still hits tens of millions of Americans every year, like 22 million records just in the last quarter of 2022. That's according to the latest Breach dashboard compiled by data company TransUnion. For more, we turn to the company's senior vice president for the public sector, Jeff Huth. Mr. Huth, good to have you on. Glad to be here. And give us some highlights of what your dashboard is showing. Tell us maybe a little bit about the methodology that you use and what we know about the amount of records that just keep getting purloined.
1: Yeah, I think the important part of this is just the sheer amount of records, the sheer amount of risk that's created. And we do this on a regular basis, and we're looking at breaches. So this comes from a company that joined TransUnion family called Sontic uh, last year. Um, It's all about consumer protection, identity theft protection. But as a result of that, they also look at breaches, and they look at the risk and the severity of breaches. So looking at it from a breach perspective and the risk and the severity, we're able to assess essentially how much information has been released and what kind of risk that could pose to anybody and really the focus here being public sector agencies. And so the focus on that is you know, 22 million more identities in Q4 became at high risk. And really the big one there is a medical identity theft, which is kind of an important thing. So that's a significant number of records that have been breached on people that could be used to purvey that kind of fraud against public sector agencies
0: and what is the source of those is it mostly cms social security i mean there's a lot of medically connected agencies
1: i suppose you could look at it as anyone who is using identity information using past medical information to conduct some form of fraud it could be medicaid it could be medicare it could be veterans benefits it could be any of those that might be done with you know the federal government i think the important point of that is the amount of information that's available puts that category of things at high risk but really it's you know other things that are high risk as well the government issued document theft which is really using that to steal someone's identity and uh, take benefits that might be useful for someone else.
0: And do the data thieves go after medical records, not because they care whether somebody has eczema or not, but because medical records are associated with location, with social security number and with payment methodologies?
1: That's correct. Like payment methodology. So medical identity theft, again, being the most pervasive, biggest risk could be used for a variety of different purposes from a fraud perspective. But again, you know, the point being so much information has been released. It's an increasing problem. The problem since we've been looking at this in 2020 is growing. The number of breaches are growing. The number of breaches indicate the amount of data that's being released is growing. And when that data is out there and able to conduct different forms of fraud, you know, it's something that we need to think about as a group in public sector. And I'm happy to see things like the anti-fraud proposal the administration put out recently, in particular, the focus on identity theft. The cybersecurity strategy talks about strengthening the cyber. You know, that's all great, and kind of dovetails nicely with us talking about, you know, kind of the risks and the threats that are going to hit our cybersecurity infrastructure and put consumers' identities at risk.
0: Is there some sort of a ratio or metric between millions of lost records and the actual cases of individuals having their identities taken or misused in some manner?
1: I'm sure there is. That's not an element that we've done in this particular research. That's, that is an interesting item that we should look at. You know, when information is breached, you know, there is a period of time when you start seeing that information on the dark web or you start seeing that information be used in certain kinds of fraud. And um, That's not an element that we focus on here, but something we should look at in future iterations of our report. And
0: what do we know about the most common breach mechanism? Is it someone has administrator passwords they get in with or is it phishing or what is it? <laughs>
1: Yeah, that would probably be a great one for some of the cybersecurity experts. But, you know, from what I've seen, what I've heard, it is typically, you know, people who are maybe not nefarious insiders, but people who are making mistakes, phishing attempts turn into open doors for hackers to exfiltrate data on individuals. And, you know, it's happening. And again, we're looking at it from the perspective of data breaches, high risk data breaches, high risk being the amount of information that's taken that can be used. Uh, But it's happening across public sector and private sector at, you know, unfortunately, an, an increasing and an alarming rate over the last several years.
0: We're speaking with Jeff Huth. He's Senior Vice President for the Public Sector at TransUnion. So it strikes me there's two issues here that the government has to deal with. One is making sure that the stuff doesn't get out and whatever their cybersecurity measures are. The other is, are there measures they can put in post facto, such that even if someone wrongly has another person's individual information, they can't make use of it with two-factor or facial or whatever the case might be.
1: Well stated, that's the recommendations that we're putting out here. We're looking at it in terms of the risk that happened, not just at the federal, but at the state level as well. And so, you know, states will be doing things around administering certain benefits programs, but the risk is still there. It's not uncommon to hear that if hackers or a fraud group have attacked a certain area and they are no longer allowed, they'll just move on to something else. So we see that, you know, happening in the public sector, the way that the private sector sees that. Again, it's a problem that keeps growing federal and state level protecting the identities of the people, making sure to provide a friction-right experience, we talk about it. So how do you throw up enough barriers so that you can prevent fraud, but also not make it difficult for people who are completely normal accessing things that should have access to it? So a friction-right experience that states and federal governments should be implementing, as well as how do we try to deal with this from an overall cybersecurity perspective? And again, I think that's kind of the two things That we've seen out of the administration recently, the identity theft and anti-fraud proposal, along with the cybersecurity strategy, you know, kind of addressing those two elements that you talked about.
0: Right, and in your experience working with clients, what does an ideal frictionless type of safe experience look like? Because you can ask people to answer 16 challenge questions, probably not ideal.
1: That's really true, and questions can themselves be discovered, unfortunately. So, them questions, knowledge-based exams, they would be called in the industry by themselves are not necessarily the best form. It's truly, you know, now we're getting into a little bit of the techno parts of it, but it's multi-factors. It's uh, things that you are, things that you know, things that you have uh, point of view. So I think of an experience where you may be uh, trying to access an account, state agency, federal agency. You have to assert who you are. Who better to then to ask who, if you assert who you are than the people who are sort of the gold standards, the credit bureaus in the U.S. Is this really, Jeff Hooth? is this really, who he says he is. And then also look at the access that I'm using and the channel, the digital attributes that I'm using. Is there anything odd or nefarious or unusual about the way and the location or the device I'm using to access it? And then introducing things along the way, like, hey, we're gonna send you a passcode to your phone that we have on record as an authorized phone from your carrier. So there's lots of different techniques like that to make the experience right. But in reverse, to kind of provide the friction right experience as well, It could be, oh, we've seen Jeff before. He's providing the same information before. There's nothing unusual about the channel by which he's coming to us. So we can take him down a different path because there are no, quote unquote, red flags along the way in terms of how he's doing things. So kind of looking at it from both, how do we throw down the appropriate barriers to how do we appropriately remove barriers for the people who don't need to be. Yeah, so
0: you really have to craft a careful approach to this whole ICAM, Identity Access Management, whether deployed to your own people or applications deployed to the public. That's right. No shortcuts here. And what about just uh, the idea of artificial intelligence infecting this whole process from the bad guys standpoint? For example, suppose you need to submit, refresh your photo for your facial recognition periodically, which might be a good practice. And this time, you know, you can wear your glasses or not, whatever the case might be. It seems like there's an AI way around a lot of these particular measures. And I can steal that face. And I can age it. And I can put glasses on it. I can make it smile, whatever.
1: Yeah, I mean, that's a, that is an interesting concept. Now we're getting a little bit outside of the report. But, you know, there are things like liveness detection around biometrics that are important. And that's you know, the idea that I can't just take a photo or a face or a picture and use it for a verification step. And I think that there's technology that should be, and, that, and that's the kind of stuff we need to look at, introduce, make sure that it's there from a fraud mitigation perspective, for sure. But in general, the topic of AI, you know, I, I'm sure that there's going to be both threats and opportunities for us to look at AI as we help to address the problem. Using it in terms of providing, again, that friction right experience, maybe AI could be kind of a human thinking in the loop around, well, do I introduce more here or do I trust less or do I trust more? It's all about trust. Start off with zero trust and then build trust.
0: And getting back to the report, who should read it and what should the top takeaways be from it?
1: Yeah. So who should read it? Anyone who is dealing with at state, federal level, of course, um, anyone who is dealing with a situation where they have to trust trust, a citizen or trusted consumer who may be trying to create an account with them, trying to access services from them, uh, trying to assert who they are. Anytime that there is a threat that someone else could be using that information for nefarious purposes. So that's, again, any state, federal agency. And I think the takeaways from it are really understanding that, number one, that the amount of data that's available in a breach creates an opportunity for fraudsters to use that information nefariously against you with the notion that things like tax fraud, medical identity theft, and the, the government document theft, those are you know, important public sector avenues by which this information could be used fraudulently. So that's one. And it's also that it's not going away. It's not a decreasing trend. It's increasing. It's continuing. It's growing. And it has been grown. And we saw it a lot during the pandemic. And it's continuing to be a problem. Medical identity theft being the most common type that we saw in the fourth quarter. We'll keep looking at it and we'll keep assessing where it's coming from. We kind of want to be the canary in the coal mine when it comes to indicating what systems might be exposed when it comes to, you know, the kinds of data that's been exposed in a breach.
0: Jeff Huth is Senior Vice President for the Public Sector at TransUnion. Thanks so much for joining me.
1: Thank you very much for having me today. I appreciate it.
0: And we'll post this interview, plus a link to that dashboard at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your shows.
2: Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Dr. David Wilson, president of Morgan State University. David has had a fascinating career and has garnered a long record of accomplishments from more than 30 years of experience in higher education administration Came to Morgan State in 2010 from the University of Wisconsin, where he was Chancellor of both the University of Wisconsin Colleges and the University of Wisconsin Extension. Before that, he held numerous other administrative posts in academia, including Vice President for the University of Outreach, Associate Provost at Auburn University, and um, Associate Provost of Rutgers. And when we were talking, Earlier, too, you had just mentioned that you had a, um, a wonderful nomination at the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. And David, thank you so much for joining me. Uh,
3: Shane, it is indeed a pleasure uh, to be invited into this conversation with you.
2: It's not in your um, in the short bio here, but I also know you served in some capacity in the Obama administration. Yes, I did. As a matter of fact, as I was leaving the University
3: of Wisconsin, where I oversaw the UW colleges, I accepted the presidency at Morgan, and on my way into the presidency at Morgan in 2010, my name was advanced to President Obama to be considered as a member of his board of advisors on historically black colleges and universities. And so I accepted and served there for eight years during his two terms.
2: Amazing. You've had a fascinating career at numerous universities across the U.S. How did you become passionate about the education field? And what are some of the biggest lessons that you've learned? First of all, I was made aware
3: of a quote by Horace Mann, who was a great 19th century educator who really gave rise to public education in the United States. And he was the first to utter the phrase that education is the great equalizer. And why that resonated with me was because I grew up in property, a white woman would bring down to this little shanty that we lived in, and she would bring Look and Life magazines. My mom, uh, she would make us as children plaster these pages of Look and Life magazines against the wall of this little shanty to keep the cold wind out. I would take a kerosene lamp and go around the walls reading those articles in Look and Life magazines, which is when I first came across the phrase of Horace man." Hmm.
2: Influenced your leadership position now as president of Morgan State. It, it had to have had an impact, but how would you articulate that? So if you go back to that Alabama environment, what I saw,
3: it was just so many people, my own brothers and sisters who were 10 times smarter than I was, but my first five brothers were literate. They never got an opportunity to show I don't care where you went to school. I don't care what type of family you came from. I think that's where sometimes we kind of get education wrong. Uh, We have institutions that want to define themselves based on how many students they don't admit. I'm about just the opposite. Taking individuals who are absolutely stellar and don't realize
2: it and bringing that into existence for them
3: went home to Alabama, because these two were very serious. And my family is brutally honest with me, and they keep me grounded. So I flew down and began to talk with them about these institutions that were coming after me. I was thinking they would be impressed. And when I finished, my youngest sister said to me, now, are you finished? Clearly,